All right, this is the beginning of Disc 2 in our presentation on Codex Sinaiticus. Before we get to the letter that was written by Constantine Simonides in which he described how he created the Codex, I want to give you some quotes about Simonides himself because if you've done any research into Constantine Simonides from just about anything written for the last hundred years, most of the historic accounts, which are usually pretty brief, will simply tell you that Simonides was a forger and they'll present the information in a very matter-of-fact way as though this were something that were fully proven and that was agreed to without question. However, it is important that you know that that is simply not the case. Simonides had a number of supporters, a number of people, reputable people, like Joseph Mayer of the Mayer Museum in Liverpool, who believed that Simonides was genuine, that he was truthful, that he was honorable. The curator at the Mayer Museum, J.E. Hodgkin, also defended Simonides continually. And then there was Mr. Charles Stewart, Stewart who had written a biography of Simonides defending him against the controversy that had erupted at the University of Leipzig with uh, Tischendorf and another scholar named Dindorf. Now what's interesting is all of this happened uh, several years before the discovery of Codex Sinaiticus in 1859 by Tischendorf and then the subsequent conflict with Simonides. So they had a, uh, a knowledge of each other beforehand. And we'll talk more about this later on. But I want to read you this quote from Charles Stewart uh, when he wrote into the newspapers because the newspapers had published so many false reports. It would take me hours to go through them all. But one of them uh, is mentioned by Stewart. And Stewart says this. He says, quote, The editorial note appended to the letter of Simonides in the Athenaeum, that's the newspaper, of last week, leads to the inference that Simonides shows a disinclination to exhibit the manuscripts in his possession. In other words, that he's hiding these manuscripts. Uh, Stewart says, quote, I can assure you that is not the case. He is ever ready to show his manuscripts and numerous other archaeological treasures to those who feel an interest in such matters. I enclose you my brother's address, and any gentleman you, Mr. Editor, may put in communication with him will be made heartily welcome to an examination of as many of Simonides' manuscripts as he can find time to inspect. A part of his collection, several chests full, are now in London, and among them are the lost works of, and then he goes on and names all of these ancient writers, and then he mentions the sheer volume of the manuscripts in Simonides' possession that are present there in London where people can go and see them. He says, quote, In fact, there is such a mass of manuscripts that if my friend had employed a factory, he could not have manufactured them in a lifetime, much less have produced them from his own pen as has been insinuated. And there he's addressing the idea of accusations of forgery. He says, quote, In conclusion, I may add that the high opinion I entertained of Dr. Simonides as a gentleman and a man of honor at the time I published his biography has in no way diminished during the two years that have elapsed. In other words, during all this controversy. 
He says, quote, I know him to be utterly incapable of committing the disgraceful deeds imputed to him and firmly believe that the truth and value of his statements and discoveries will, ere long, be universally admitted and recognized. I am, sir, yours, etc., Charles Stewart. Okay, then we find another comment about Simonides and his character in The Dial, which was a newspaper in London, and they published in January 17, 1862. They said, quote, Alexander von Humboldt says he is an enigma and that the mystery and the injudicious commentaries upon him by which some have made themselves ridiculous arise from the imperturbable and naturally incommunicative character of Simonides. Okay, so Alexander von Humboldt, who is a very prominent figure throughout history as a man of science and learning and so on, knew Simonides and called him an enigma and said the reason for the injudicious commentaries upon him by which some have made themselves ridiculous. You see, he's he's actually saying that Simonides' critics have made themselves ridiculous and the reason is because of the imperturbable and naturally incommunicative character of Simonides. And I think what Humboldt meant by that, based upon reading the commentaries and the encounters with Simonides, when he says the imperturbable and naturally incommunicative, I think by imperturbable he meant that Simonides was so confident in what he believed that whereas other people would get up in arms and upset over various debates and discussions, Simonides would always stay very calm and almost had kind of a dismissive disposition when he believed somebody else was wrong. And his confidence was not, it, it was not a vain and empty boast, as we'll see. In fact, uh, now I want to read a quote from Constantine von Tischendorf. This is a quote from Tischendorf before all of his conflicts with Simonides. This is in February of 1856, prior to the conflict at Leipzig, and Tischendorf had written a commentary about Simonides, who had, you know, come into Germany and was interacting with the scholars there. And Tischendorf had this to say about him. He said, quote, Simonides received an excellent education, and when a young man, spent a considerable time in the Greek monasteries at Mount Athos, occupying himself almost exclusively in the study of ancient manuscripts by means of which, especially, he greatly enriched his knowledge of the Greek and Egyptian antiquities. At the same time, he employed himself very much in drawing and lithography, in which he became very skillful, and this skill was turned to account afterwards when he copied the ancient manuscripts. Moreover, by vigorous study and many voyages in Asia and Africa, Simonides arrived at the climax of superiority in philology, particularly in the knowledge of the wonderful art of ancient manuscripts. Okay, so at this point, you begin to see that Simonides was a respected, renowned paleographer that was operating in the highest levels of academia in Europe at that time. He's interacting with all of the guys who would become the great names 
from that point in history onward. And one of the others who got wind of Simonides was Fenton John Anthony Hort. He was another prominent scholar. And yes, this is, of course, Hort from the Westcott and Hort Revision Committee that would take Codex Sinaiticus, combine it with Codex Vaticanus, and come up with a critical text. And Hort plays a role in all of this because what happened was uh, Simonides, when he first saw the facsimiles of Codex Sinaiticus being published, he said that he recognized it as his own work. And word of this, and at the time, he said it to a friend of Samuel P. Tregellis. And so Tregellis learned about this, and Hort learned about it, and then Hort ends up sending a letter into the newspapers where he's quoting Tregellis, who said that uh, he saw Codex Sinaiticus, and he says, well, I think the story of Simonides is as false and absurd as possible. Now, according to J.K. Eliot in his book on Codex Sinaiticus and the Simonides Affair, he says that Simonides seems to have spoken about the date of Sinaiticus prior to September 1862 when he sends this letter in, insofar as Tregellus knew of this theory before then. He spoke of it to J.E. Hodgkin in 1860 and in a letter to Sir Thomas Phillips on August 2nd, 1861. And so we see from this that it is documented that Simonides spoke to others in the academic community, friends of his, about this issue before he ever published anything in the newspapers. And then the letter was written by Hort that was published in the newspapers, and so Simonides was compelled at that point to respond. And so, uh, this letter appeared in the Guardian, September 3rd, 1862, and Simonides says this, quote, Sir, as you have in your impression of August 13th, published a letter from a correspondent signing himself F.J.A.H. That's Fenton John Anthony Hort, as in Westcott and Hort. He goes on, he says, in which reference is made to me. I must ask you for permission to make a statement in reply. Your correspondent favors you with some extracts from a letter written by Dr. Tregellis in which the following sentence occurs, quote, I believe that I need hardly say that the story of Simonides that he wrote the manuscript is as false and absurd as possible, end quote. The manuscript referred to is that called the Codex Sinaiticus, now being published under the editorship of Professor Tischendorf at the expense of the Russian government. As what Dr. Tregellis calls my story has never been published, and as that gentleman can only have heard of it through an indirect medium, it may interest both Dr. Tregellis and your readers to have the story direct from myself. I will tell it as briefly as possible. Okay. Uh, so then he goes on, and now he begins to give the official story that was published in the newspapers in 1862. And he says this, quote, About the end of the year 1839, the Venerable Benedict, my uncle, spiritual head of the monastery of the Holy Martyr Pantalemon, 
in Mount Athos wished to present to the Emperor Nicholas I of Russia some gift from the sacred mountain, in grateful acknowledgement of the presence which had from time to time been offered to the monastery of the martyr. Not possessing anything which he deemed acceptable, he consulted with the herald Procopius and the Russian monk Paul, and they decided upon a copy of the Old and New Testaments written according to the ancient form in capital letters and on parchment. Now notice what he says there. This is very important. He says, written according to the ancient form. And that is very important. Brethren, make a note of that because paleography, the science, the so-called science of paleography is little more than identifying how letters are written from one century to the next. And so paleography, and you can go and, and read about this and study it, but it's important to remember that paleography is primarily handwriting analysis and how people shaped letters in each century. That is paleography in a nutshell. There are other components, but that's it in a nutshell. And the reason that is significant is because Simonides tells us that he shaped his letters according to the ancient writing, according to the ancient manner of writing, and he was expert in this. All right, so let's continue with his letter. So he says it is going to, quote, be, uh, be quote, written according to the ancient form in capital letters and on parchment. This together with the remains of the seven apostolic fathers, Barnabas, Hermas, Clement, Bishop of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, and Dionysius the Areopagite, they proposed should be bound in gold and presented to the emperor by a common friend. Dionysius, the professional calligrapher of the monastery, was then begged to undertake the work, but he declined, saying that the task being exceedingly difficult, he would rather not do so. In consequence of this, I myself determined to begin the work, especially as my revered uncle seemed earnestly to wish it. Having then examined the principal copies of the Holy Scriptures, preserved at Mount Athos, I began to practice the principles of calligraphy, and the learned Benedict, taking a copy of the Moscow edition of both Testaments, published and presented to the Greeks by the illustrious brothers Zosimas, collated it with the ancient ones, and by this means cleared it of many errors, after which he gave it into my hands to transcribe. Having then received both the Testaments, freed from errors, the old spelling, however, remaining unaltered. Now that is very important. That's very important. He's saying that the old spelling, the old Greek spelling, he left unaltered. Why? For the same reason, let's say somebody was going to write uh, an, an original King James 1611. You have the old spelling of the King James that is often very thick and difficult to read. You can, you can work your way through it, but it's an older spelling of the English language. Meanwhile, the, uh, the more modern King James Bibles, even though they're based on the 1611, they're using a more modernized form of English. 
you get the, uh, most people are reading the 1769 edition. At any rate, this same dynamic exists when you're talking about ancient Greek. Now, the reason this is important is because FHA Scrivener, who is one of the uh, scholars of the 19th century who worked with Westcott and Hort on the revision committee, and Scrivener is a name that often comes up when people are debating about the traditional Greek versus the critical text. Scrivener wrote a whole introduction to Codex Sinaiticus in which he talked about the Simonides affair, and he specifically talked about the uh, spelling, quote-unquote, errors that exist in Codex Sinaiticus, and what he means by that apparently are the, the spelling that favors the ancient spelling of the Old Greek. And he acknowledges in his introduction to describing Codex Sinaiticus Simonides' claim. But he doesn't have any logical argument against Simonides other than to, to say that he doesn't think that somebody would have gone and spelled all of the letters according to the old language. He just dismisses it. He says it doesn't seem likely to him. And yet this was the account that Simonides gave when he is describing the process. Because that's what you find in Sinaiticus. You find the older form, not only of the writing of the letters, but the spelling choices that were made were specifically done. And again, you can find people in the modern world who are writing, like especially if you go to some of these uh, uh, Renfests, Renaissance fairs and this kind of thing, they'll often have signs posted, you know, hear ye, hear ye. And they're writing the words out in the old English language because that's what they want. They want that character and that feel of the old world. And that seems to have been what uh, Simonides and his uncle Benedict, according to this account, they wanted that same kind of look and characteristic to the manuscript they were putting together for the Tsar of Russia. Okay, so he says, quote, The old spelling, however, remaining unaltered. Being short of parchment, I selected from the library of the monastery, with Benedict's permission, a very bulky volume, antiquely bound and almost entirely blank, the parchment of which was remarkably clean and beautifully finished. This had been prepared apparently many centuries ago, probably by the writer or by the principal of the monastery, as it bore the inscription, a collection of panegyrics. Now, uh, the word panegyric has to do with uh, a some kind of public profession of praise or laudation, that kind of thing. And he doesn't go into any more detail than that, but he just says it was originally called a collection of panegyrics. So he says, a collection of panegyrics, quote, and also a short discourse much injured by time. So what he's, what he's saying is on this monastery, at this monastery on Mount Athos, he found a bulky volume that had all these uh, pages of vellum in it, and the pages had been prepared centuries ago. According to Simonides, this is the reason why the pages of Sinaiticus have an ancient appearance, because the vellum had been prepared hundreds of years earlier. And he doesn't say how many centuries ago, but he does say it was centuries ago.
And also it's worth noting that Mount Athos goes all the way back to, well, it goes back thousands of years, we can only imagine, but in terms of the monastic life there, where you've had monasteries and monks, that goes back to at least the 10th century A.D. So it is very likely that you're going to find these kind of manuscripts on Mount Athos. And notice the kind of detail that he's giving. He has a a detailed memory of how this all came about, why they're preparing the manuscript, what the manus- these pages originally said, a collection of uh, panegyrics or panegyrics, and a short discourse in- injured by time. These are typically, if you have a false witness, a false witness doesn't have these kind of details, usually. Usually a false witness will be short on details and will be full of all kinds of inconsistencies. But the truth is, if we examine the account given by Simonides and we measure it against the account given by Tischendorf, in reality, it's Tischendorf who has all kinds of inconsistencies. And we'll talk about that shortly. Let's go on and read the rest of this. So he says, uh, he finds these pages there. He says it was originally a collection of uh, panegyrics and so on. Then he says, quote, I therefore took possession of this book and prepared it by taking out the leaf containing the discourse and by removing several others injured by time and moths, after which I began my task. Now that is very important. Notice the mention of moths there, or wormholes, if you will, flaws in the parchment. If you study Codex Sinaiticus, when you come to the wormholes in Codex Sinaiticus, the text is written around the wormhole, around the hole in the parchment. Now, if this were a 4th century manuscript, vellum parchment was first developed and used in the 4th century. That's the reason why, one of the reasons why, Sinaiticus is dated back to the 4th century. Because prior to that, they were using papyrus. They only begin to use vellum in the 4th century. Now, if this were a new piece of vellum, and you had a scribe writing on a new piece of vellum, would it have a wormhole in it? A moth hole? It, it doesn't seem likely. It seems like a brand new sheet of vellum would be clean. It would be wormholes come about over time because you've had a book or a parchment or something sitting on the shelf for years or decades or hundreds of years, and that's where the wormholes come in. And so if you had a piece of vellum and it had a wormhole in it and a scribe was writing, when they got to the wormhole, they would write around it. And that's what we find in Codex Sinaiticus. Okay, now I'll admit that's not completely conclusive, but it fits in with Simonides' story. It fits in with the account that he gave. So he says, uh, quote, After which I began my task, first I copied out the Old and New Testaments, then the Epistle of Barnabas, the first part of the pastoral writings of Hermas, in capital letters, or uncial characters, in the style known in calligraphy as Amphidexios. Now let's talk about this. When he mentions Hermas, 
He's talking about the shepherd of Hermas. Prior to the discovery of Codex Sinaiticus, Constantine Simonides provably was the only scholar to have seen or had access to a copy of the Shepherd of Hermas in Greek. And he presented his copy of the Shepherd of Hermas at the University of Leipzig in the year 1856. And this was uh, seen and it was analyzed and embraced by the scholars at Leipzig as being genuine. It was initially embraced by Tischendorf as being genuine, and then Tischendorf changed his mind on it, and he believed that it had been uh, drafted uh, from a Latin version, because in the West they had only seen the Latin version. And Tischendorf believed that it had been derived from a Latin version of the shepherd and then translated back into Greek. Now, despite what some have said about Simonides, Tischendorf did not believe that Simonides himself did that as some kind of forgery. Although if you read the historic accounts, that's what people will say. But that's not what Tischendorf believed. If you read Tischendorf's writings carefully, he believed it was done in the Middle Ages. He believed it had been done hundreds of years earlier. That is what he said initially. However, after the Codex Sinaiticus was discovered by him and he read the Shepherd of Hermas in Codex Sinaiticus, he retracted his view. Why? Because once he had what he believed was a genuine, authentic Greek copy of the Shepherd of Hermas and he compared it with the copy of the Shepherd that had been presented by Constantine Simonides, he realized that Simonides' copy of the Shepherd of Hermas was an authentic Greek copy because it matched up with Codex Sinaiticus. So again, this scholars, including Scrivener, if you read Scrivener's introduction to the Codex Sinaiticus, he says this is the one peculiarity about Simonides that he had this copy of the Shepherd of Hermas. James Farrar, in his book on literary forgeries in 1907, says the same thing. That this is a point in favor of Simonides because it means that he could have drafted a Greek copy of the Shepherd of Hermas because nobody else had a copy in Greek. He was the only person in the world with access to such a copy. So it's another point in favor of the possibility of him having drafted the Codex Sinaiticus. And just to give you a quote on this, this is from the History of the Christian Church, Volume 2, Anti-Nicene Christianity, dealing with the Shepherd of Hermas. It says, quote, The Greek text brought from Mount Athos by Constantine Simonides and called Codex Lipsiensis was first published by R. Anger, and with a preface by G. Dindorf. These are two scholars from the University of Leipzig, 1856. Then it says by Tischendorf, 1857. And it says again in the second edition of 1863, where Tischendorf, in consequence of the intervening discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus, retracted his former objections to the originality of the Greek Hermas from Mount Athos which he had pronounced a medieval translation from the Latin. 
and if you read the notes on this, it's very clear, Tischendorf did not believe, as some have said, that Simonides created this as a forgery. Tischendorf believed that if it was a forgery originally, that it had been done in the Middle Ages. But then he retracted that view after he discovered Codex Sinaiticus. Okay, so I know we took a little detour there from Simonides' uh, written account of what happened, but I, I feel it's very important as we're going through his letter to the newspaper to point these things out because there's so many details. But okay, so let's go back to where he says that uh, he copied the Old and New Testaments, and then he says, quote, the first part of the pastoral writings of Hermas in capital letters or unsealed characters in the style known in calligraphy as Amphidexios. Then he says, quote, The transcription of the remaining apostolic writings, however, I declined because the supply of parchment ran short. And that is another point that agrees with the modern paleographical analysis because most scholars agree that whoever the scribe was that worked on Sinaiticus, he stopped short of completing his objective in terms of completing everything he intended to do. Okay, so he says he stopped the work, quote, because the supply of parchment ran short and the severe loss which I sustained in the death of Benedict induced me to hand the work over at once to the bookbinders of the monastery for the purpose of replacing the original covers made of wood and covered with leather, which I had removed for convenience. And when he had done so, I took it into my possession. Okay, so he, according to his account, he stopped working on it because of the death of his uncle and because he ran out of the vellum parchment that he was using. So he has the covers uh, put back on the manuscript. And then he says, quote, Sometime after this, having removed to Constantinople, I showed the work to the patriarchs Anthemus and Constantius and communicated to them the reason of the transcription. Constantius took it and having thoroughly examined it, urged me to present it to the library of Sinai. That's Mount Sinai where Tischendorf discovered it. He says, which I accordingly promised to do. Constantius had previously been Bishop of Sinai and since his resignation of that office had again become perpetual Bishop of that place. Okay, so he goes on. He says, Shortly after this, I was placed under the protection of the illustrious Countess Etling, E-T-L-E-N-G, and her brother, A.S. Storsas, S-T-O-U-R-T-Z-A-S. Uh, in case anybody wants to look up the spelling there. So he's under the protection of these people. He says, quote, by the cooperation of two patriarchs. But before departing for Odessa, I went over to the island of Antigonus to visit Constantius and to perform my promise of giving up the manuscript to the library of Mount Sinai. The patriarch was, however, absent from home, and I, consequently, left the packet for him with a letter. On his return, he wrote me the following answer. And then this is the letter from Constantius, who said, quote, My dearly beloved son in the Holy Spirit, Simonides, grace be with you and peace from God. 
I received with unfeigned satisfaction your truly valuable transcript of the Holy Scriptures, namely the Old and New Testaments, together with the Epistle of St. Barnabas and the first part of the pastoral writings of Hermas, bound in one volume, which shall be placed in the library of Mount Sinai, according to your wish. But I exhort you earnestly, if ever by God's will you should return to the sacred Mount Athos, to finish the work as you originally designed it, and he will reward you. In other words, to finish doing the complete work that uh, had been set forth by his uncle Benedict. Uh, and then he says, quote, Be with me on the third of next month, that I may give you letters to the illustrious A.S. Storzas to inform him of your talents and abilities and to give you a few hints which may prove useful to the success of your plans. I sincerely trust that you were born for the honor of your country. Amen. Constantius, late of Constantinople, an earnest worshiper in Christ. Island of Antigonus, 13th August, 1841. Okay, so he has a copy of this letter that he got from Constantius. Now, the obvious question is, okay, did anybody go to talk to Constantius? Unfortunately, when all of this controversy broke after 1860, Constantius had already passed away. He had already died, so nobody could seek him out, apparently. Scrivener talks about this uh, in his account when he talks about Simonides, that Constantius had passed away uh, at this time. So, Simonides says, quote, After I received the above letter, I again went to visit the patriarch, who gave me the kindest and most paternal advice with letters to Storzas, after which I returned to Constantinople and from thence went to Odessa in November of 1841. In 1846, I again returned to Constantinople when I at once went over to the island of Antigonus to visit Constantius and to place in his possession a large packet of manuscripts. He received me with the greatest kindness, and we conversed on many different subjects, amongst others upon my transcript, when he informed me that he had sent it some time previously to Mount Sinai. So, according to this, he visits uh, Constantius again later on. They're having a conversation, and Constantius confirms, yes, I sent your manuscript to the library at Mount Sinai. So Simonides is explaining how his manuscript actually got into the library at Mount Sinai where it was found by Tischendorf. So then he says this, quote, In 1852, I saw it there myself and begged the librarian to inform me how the monastery had acquired it, but he did not appear to know anything of the matter, and I, for my part, said nothing. However, I examined the manuscript and found it much altered, having an older appearance than it ought to have. This is in 1852. Now let's get a timeline here so that we understand what's going on and the order of events. According to Simonides, he began the work in 1839. He finished his part of the work in 1840. Then he hands it over to Constantius in 1841 and afterwards receives the letter that's dated August of 1841 in which Constantius says that he received the manuscript and that he was planning to send it to the library at Mount Sinai. 
That's 1841. So then it's after this in 1844, that is when Tischendorf, according to his account, went to the library at Mount Sinai and found the first 43 leaves of the manuscript, the first 43 pages, for all intents and purposes. That's 1844. So then Simonides is saying that it was in 1846 that he saw Constantius again, and Constantius confirmed that indeed he had sent the manuscript to the library at Mount Sinai. That's 1846. And we can only assume that Simonides is relating this because he's trying to communicate confirmation that yes, his manuscript did make it into the library at Mount Sinai because Simonides himself did not bring it there. It was sent by Constantius. So he received that confirmation in 1846 and then he says in 1852, he himself goes to St. Catherine's Monastery, and that is when he sees the manuscript there. He says it was much altered, but this is the first time that he had seen it since 1841. So, uh, 1852, this is about 11 years later. 11 years have passed, and 1852 he is seeing the manuscript for the first time in 11 years. Now, some people may question how likely it would be that Simonides would be at St. Catherine's Monastery. The library at Mount Sinai is one of the epicenters for ancient manuscripts in that part of the world. And remember, he was a Greek Orthodox paleographer. His Uh, And he was raised up by his uncle, Benedict, who was a Greek Orthodox monk. And so this was part of Simonides' world, to be on Mount Athos, to be at uh, Mount Sinai, and so on. This is the world that he operated in. So it's not at all unusual that he would go to the library at Mount Sinai. Uh, But he was there. He says he saw the manuscript. He says he found it much altered. Quote, having an older appearance than it ought to have. He says, quote, The dedication to the Emperor Nicholas placed at the beginning of the book had been removed. I then began my philological researches, for there were several valuable manuscripts in the library which I wished to examine. Amongst them I found the pastoral writings of Hermas, the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, and the disputed epistle of Aristius to Philoctetes, all written on Egyptian papyrus of the first century, with others not unworthy of note. All this I communicated to Constantius and afterwards to my spiritual father, Calistratus at Alexandria. You have thus a short and clear account of the Codex Simonides, which Professor Tischendorf, when at Sinai, contrived, I know not how, to carry away, and going to St. Petersburg, published his discovery there under the name of Codex Sinaiticus. When, about two years ago, I saw the first facsimiles of Tischendorf, which were put into my hand at Liverpool by Mr. Newton, a friend of Dr. Tregellis, I at once recognized my own work as I immediately told him. This is the statement of Simonides.
He says, when he saw the first facsimiles published by Tischendorf, this is in the year 1860, okay, because he's writing this letter in 1862 in The Guardian, and he says it's two years ago. That puts it back to 1860. And so you have witnesses here. Mr. Newton was a witness that, yes, indeed, Simonides made that statement as soon as he saw the facsimiles of Tischendorf. And the fact that he made that statement to Mr. Newton, who was a friend of Samuel P. Tregellis, that fact was never disputed. And if it were not true, if Simonides had never said that at that time, that surely would have been proclaimed by Tregellis. Because Tregellis, remember, was against Simonides on this. He said the statement of Simonides is as false and absurd as possible. Now, the reason why Tregellis thought it was false and absurd as possible is because he believed that his ability and the ability of Tischendorf and of Fenton John Anthony Hort, their abilities as paleographers to identify an authentic ancient manuscript, that their ability was superior to this account given by Simonides. And Scribner essentially says the same thing. They all believe that their paleographical abilities at discerning what an ancient manuscript would look like, that that was superior. And that was the chief reason why, and really the only reason why, they rejected Simonides' testimony. And this was also the case with Henry Bradshaw, Bradshaw who was the keeper of manuscripts at the Cambridge Library. And it is said that it was Bradshaw's confirmation of Codex Sinaiticus that was a key reason why it was eventually embraced. Because the early newspaper articles had the question up in the air. Some of them favored Simonides and were reporting that Codex Sinaiticus was a modern manuscript. But then Henry Bradshaw saw the manuscript and he said he thought it was genuine So then Simonides wrote him a letter and in the letter he wrote an example of ancient Greek characters to prove to Henry Bradshaw that he had the ability to write Greek letters in the same way that they appear in Codex Sinaiticus. And Bradshaw mentions this. In fact, some people have asked me, they've said, well, If Simonides did this, why didn't he just sit down and write something that's like the Greek in Codex Sinaiticus? And he did. He actually sent uh, a sample of his writing capabilities to Henry Bradshaw and a collection of other scholars to show them that he had the ability to write in the same way, that this was his writing. And none of them, strangely, none of them comment on it. They mention it. Bradshaw mentions that Simonides sent him a letter to convince him, but then Bradshaw, in the exchange, here's what he says. In a letter that he wrote to the Guardian in 1863, he says that Simonides came with a friend to see him at Cambridge. He says, quote, the note which Dr. Simonides wrote to me was to convince me and my friends that it was quite possible for him to have written the volume in question and to confirm his assertion that the uncial character of the manuscript was as familiar and easy to him to write as the common cursive hand 
of the present day. Now again, Simonides did this with a number of different scholars. But the very peculiar thing is, is that Bradshaw, even though he mentions this, he nowhere comes back and says that he analyzed the handwriting that Simonides sent him and then said, well, his handwriting is completely different. It could not have been the handwriting of Codex Sinaiticus. But instead what he does is in this account that we're reading in his letter to the Guardian, he goes on to describe the rest of his conversation with Simonides about how to identify an ancient manuscript. So then he mentions how Simonides came to Cambridge when his, with his friend, and he says, quote, They first taxed us with believing in the antiquity of manuscripts solely on the authority of one man like Tischendorf, and they really seemed to believe that all people in the West were as ignorant of Greek as the Greeks are of Latin. But the great question was, how do you satisfy yourselves of the genuineness of any manuscript? I first replied that it was really difficult to define, that it seemed to be more a kind of instinct than anything else. Dr. Simonides and his friend readily caught at this as too much like vague assertion, and they naturally ridiculed any such idea. But I further said that I had lived for six years past in a constant, almost daily habit of examining manuscripts. Uh, So he's saying six years, that's his experience here. And he says, examining manuscripts, not merely the texts of the works contained in the volumes, but the volumes themselves as such, the writing, the paper or parchment, the arrangement and numbering of the sheets, the distinction between the original volume and any additional matter by later hands, etc. And that with experience of this kind, though it might be difficult to assign the special ground of my confidence, yet I hardly ever found myself deceived. Now that line is a very peculiar line because remember, deception in the field of paleography is entirely a matter of opinion. You have paleographers who disagree all the time. Uh, We talked about the whole episode with the Shepherd of Hermas. You had uh, two of the scholars at Leipzig University who thought it was genuine. Simonides said it was genuine. Tischendorf disagreed. It later turned out that Tischendorf was wrong. So, again, as I've said before, paleography is not an exact science. So Bradshaw continues in his narrative. This is the point that I want to make. He continues in his narrative... He says that Simonides at first agreed with this idea of judging according to your instincts, but then when it came to Codex Sinaiticus, supposedly Simonides changed his mind and wasn't willing to allow Bradshaw to judge Sinaiticus in the same way. And so he says, and he wrote me the letter to which he refers in the hope of convincing me, the letter with the special Greek characters. And so Bradshaw says, quote, I told him as politely as I could that I was not to be convinced against the evidence of my senses. The evidence of my senses. That is what he based his conclusion about Codex Sinaiticus on. His instincts about the manuscript. That was the scientific analysis that he applied by his own admission. 
And all of those who chose to embrace Sinaiticus did it based on the same criteria. They said, well, our paleographical expertise is the only proof that we need. And I believe part of the reason why they fought so hard against Simonides was because they did not want themselves to be exposed as charlatans. Okay, so we've taken this brief detour here to talk about Bradshaw. But now let's go back to Simonides' letter and read the very last section of the initial letter that he wrote to the Guardian where he's describing his whole process of having created the Codex Sinaiticus. So we left off where he says, quote, When about two years ago I saw the first facsimiles of Tischendorf, which were put into my hand at Liverpool by Mr. Newton, a friend of Dr. Tregellis, I at once recognized my own work as I immediately told him. The above is a true statement of the origin and history of the famous Codex Sinaiticus, which Professor Tischendorf has foisted on the learned world as a manuscript of the 4th century. I have now only one or two remarks to make. The name of the professional calligraphist to the monastery of St. Pantalemon was Dionysius. The name of the monk who was sent by the patriarch Constantius to convey the volume from the island of Antigonus to Sinai was Germanus. Now what's interesting is they apparently investigated to discover that Constantius had passed away, but there's no record that anybody bothered to investigate this fellow Germanus. But notice, Simonides is providing names, places, dates, and so on. But nobody ever bothered to investigate and find out who Germanus was. Nobody ever bothered to investigate and find out who the calligraphist Dionysius was, or to see if he could shed some light on this or confirm the story of Simonides. But if you, if you examine how Simonides' opponents investigated this and so on. They spent nearly all of their time just hurling accusations at him. There was almost no sincere or serious effort to investigate the details of his story. Uh, so then he goes on. Uh, he mentions Germanus. Then he says, quote, The volume, whilst in my possession, was seen by many persons, and it was perused with attention by the Haji John Prodromus, son of Papa Prodromus. Now, the term haji uh, is used by the Muslims, uh, but it's also used by the Greek Orthodox Church, referring to somebody who's made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So, it's shown to the haji, uh, John Prodromus, son of Papa Prodromus, who was a minister of the Greek Church in Tebizond, T-E-B-I-Z-O-N-D. Then he says, John Prodromus kept a coffee house in uh, Galatus, Constantinople, and probably does so still. The note from the patriarch Constantius acknowledging the receipt of the manuscript, together with 25,000 piastres, sent to me by Constantius as a benediction, was brought to me by the deacon Hilarion. All the persons thus named are, I believe, still alive and could bear witness to the truth of my statement." Okay, now of those who are being named, Constantius, we know, had passed away. It may be that at this point, Simonides was unaware of that. But, 
The others who he's naming, John Prodromus, Germanus, Hilarion, he's naming eyewitnesses who saw and encountered this manuscript and who could confirm his story. Now, what's further very interesting is that in the newspapers at the time, there were some who noted that some of the names, in particular Dionysius and Hilarion, that some of those names occur in the notes of the Codex Sinaiticus. This is something that many scholars don't talk about. However, uh, the Journal of Sacred Literature in October 1862 they talked about these names and they said, uh, they said, quote, one thing we know that in the extracts given by Tischendorf in the Notitia, there is at page 24 a Greek note to this effect. Remember, Lord, the soul of the sinner Dionysius, a monk, when thou comest in thy kingdom. And then they say, of course, we shall be told by Simonides that this is his friend, the calligrapher but we shall hesitate to admit the explanation. And then uh, they say, upon one page of the facsimiles, we find a copy of an inscription by one Dionysius. No doubt the Dionysius to whom we owe the one of the same name, who Mr. Simonides calls the professional calligrapher of Pantale- uh, Pantalemon at Mount Athos. And then he says, then he says, this Dionysius wrote a wretched, crabbed, cursive hand and was undoubtedly among the living many centuries back. So what are they saying? They're saying, well, in our estimation, we think the handwriting is centuries old and could not be from a modern Dionysius. All right. Then it goes on and it says, quote, there is another autograph of one Hilarion. And to this we trace the deacon Hilarion of Simonides, the same guy that Simonides mentions in his letter. His name turns up inside the Codex Sinaiticus. But what do they say? They say, quote, But Hilarion has unquestionably been among the blessed for several hundred years. And what do they base this on? They base it on nothing other than their own ability at handwriting analysis. That's it. It's based on nothing other than that. Did they take the time to go and investigate? Did they go and inquire about Hilarion or Dionysius or Germanus or anyone? No. In fact, uh, J.K. Eliot in his book, uh, Codex Sinaiticus and the Simonides Affair, he says, quote, of the witnesses cited by Simonides in his letter of 3rd September 1862, none was ever produced. Neither Dionysius the scribe, nor Germanus the monk, nor Hilarion the deacon, nor John Padromus the coffeehouse keeper were called upon to corroborate the story. None of these were ever called upon to corroborate the story. Now, the burden of proving this out, if you're going to claim that Simonides was lying, he's providing you with plenty of names of people that can be sought out. But none of the people who refused to believe him, none of them sought out any of these people. And so what it reveals, in my opinion, they did not care about the truth. Here they've got a manuscript that they're calling the oldest Bible ever found, the oldest complete Bible ever found. And it's such an important find. 
wouldn't it be absolutely critical to make sure this was a genuine artifact? That it was real? Wouldn't that be important to somebody who really loved the truth? And I mean, Simonides' claims are very bold. We read before how he talked about, how he explained the many corrections, that many of the corrections were done by his uncle Benedict, others were done by Dionysius, the calligrapher. But then you had those who claimed that while you had three to four main scribes that worked on it, there were a number of other correctors, as many as ten different correctors. And so Simonides explains many of the corrections. However, it's possible that other hands were uh, tampering with it as well. And this was addressed by Simonides. Uh, He says in one of his letters in 1863, he says, How is it possible that a manuscript written beautifully and with no intention to deceive in 1840 should, in 1862, present so ancient an appearance? I answer simply thus. The manuscript had been systematically tampered with in order to give it an ancient appearance as early as 1852, when, as I have already stated, it had an older appearance than it ought to have had. Okay, so this is when he had gone to St. Catherine's Monastery and he saw the manuscript there and he noted that somebody had removed the title page and was tampering with it and it looked much older than it ought to look. So then he goes on in that same letter to challenge Tischendorf to produce Codex Sinaiticus in London. Simonides said, quote, I will meet him there at any time he may appoint, and in a public meeting of literary men assembled for the purpose, it shall be once and forever decided whether he or Simonides has spoken truly. Okay, and just so you know, and as we explain in Tears Among the Wheat, Simonides made that challenge repeatedly. He repeatedly challenged Tischendorf to a public debate and Tischendorf refused to show up. In fact, the literary churchman in December 1862 said, quote, Will Simonides challenge Tischendorf to let him point out in the presence of any scholars his own private marks, which Simonides says that he himself made on the Codex, now supposed to be ancient? All right? And yes, Simonides did challenge Tischendorf and was willing to show the special markings that he had put on the manuscript, but Tischendorf would not show up and he would not bring the original manuscript. Now, to address the tampering issue, the idea that the manuscript was tampered with, this was partly confirmed by Simonides' friend Kalinikos, as we talk about in Tears Among the Wheat. Kalinikos, who was a Greek Orthodox monk, and sent in a series of letters from Alexandria to the English newspapers uh, in an attempt to support Simonides' claims, because he had been in touch with Simonides, and he was someone who had seen Simonides working on the manuscript years earlier. Kalinikos had a very interesting testimony. He claimed that Tischendorf did not find these pages in a manuscript, the first 43 leaves, but that he tore them out of the manuscript, or took them out, and stole them, which actually fits with the account given by the monks today. That's one. Two, as far as the tampering goes, Kalinikos stated that the manuscript 
had been washed with lemon juice to weaken the letters and to give it a more ancient appearance. Now, this is documented, brethren. This is all documented in his letters. Now, to my knowledge, nobody has ever investigated scientifically whether or not Codex Sinaiticus had ever been cleaned with lemon juice. And I'm not even sure if at this point there would be traces of it on the vellum. All right, but one more thing about uh, Kalinikos. All right, and he says to the newspapers at one point, he says, I counsel you not to continue circulating contrary statements, for you will greatly sin in foisting on the world a new manuscript as an old one, and especially a manuscript containing the Holy Scriptures. Injury to the church must accrue from all of this, even from the evidently numerous corrections of the manuscript. Kalinikos' words are almost prophetic in this regard because probably the most injurious thing to the church in modern times has been Codex Sinaiticus. And the reason is, as we've shown before at the beginning of this presentation, the reason is because of these 23,000 corrections that has convinced the modern world that the Bible cannot be the inspired, inerrant Word of God. This is the reason why, brethren, people have lost confidence in the Bible. This is why. The number one reason why is Codex Sinaiticus and the analysis of this manuscript by the higher critics, which sadly has been embraced by much of the established church today. And the reason for that is that most scholars, most Christian academics, have no idea about this controversy that went on when the manuscript was first discovered. You look at all of the detailed information that Simonides presented, names and dates and places, everything, and then you compare his very detailed, very specific testimony with the story of Tischendorf. Tischendorf cannot name anyone. He cannot give you the name of the monk who was throwing the pages in the fire when he found the first 43 leaves back in 1844. He doesn't provide any names or details. Uh, When he went back in 1859 and obtained the uh, balance of the New Testament manuscript, he doesn't provide a name for anyone who gave him that manuscript, even though he claims it was somebody there at the monastery. We don't know who it was. And there were no attempts that were made to confirm Tischendorf's story. There's one attempt that was made, and I'm going I'm to read this very quickly. One attempt that was made that's recorded by J.E. Hodgkin. And Hodgkin, just so you know, was a supporter of Constantine Simonides. He believed that Simonides was telling the truth. And he never recanted of that. He never supported the idea that Simonides was a liar and a forger. He stood by Simonides the whole time. And so he says this in his letter to the Guardian in 1863. He says, quote, It is somewhat remarkable that when inquiries were made in February 1861 at Mount Sinai by the Reverend W. W. Woolcombe of Salford 
about the biblical manuscript sent thence by Tischendorf to the emperor, the reply of the librarian was, quote, that he knew nothing about the matter, that he never heard of any manuscript being sent to the emperor or brought away by Tischendorf. Mr. Woolcombe was not able to give him detailed information as to the characteristics of the Codex and all attempts to identify it by its connection with the name of Tischendorf were unsuccessful. In fact, the literary churchman in 1862 said, quote, The account of Tischendorf is evidently made up. They assert that Tischendorf was lying. The monks from St. Catherine's Monastery to this day argue that Tischendorf was lying. And as I've said before, if you read the account, the history, the brief uh, pseudo-history presented by the British Library today, they apparently believed that Tischendorf was lying because they reject most of what he said about discovering the first 43 leaves of the manuscript. And why would they do that unless they believed he was being untruthful or lying? All right, so let's conclude with the rest of Simonides' letter. Here, the last part. He says, All the persons thus named are, I believe, still alive and could bear witness to the truth of my statement. Then he says, quote, Of the internal evidence of the manuscript, I shall not now speak. Any person learned in paleography ought to be able to tell at once that it is a manuscript of the present age. But I may just note that my uncle Benedict corrected the manuscript in many places. And as it was intended to be recopied, he marked many letters which he purposed to have illuminated. The corrections in the handwriting of my uncle I can, of course, point out, as also those of Dionysius the calligraphist. In certain places I marked in the margin the initials of the different manuscripts from which I had taken certain passages and readings. These initials appear to have greatly bewildered Professor Tischendorf, who has invented several highly ingenious methods of accounting for them. Needless to say, Tischendorf, after he read this letter from Simonides published in the papers, he would refute it in a letter that he published in a German newspaper in 1862. Uh, his refutations of Simonides are all very general and vague. Just basically, uh, if you read his letters, he's basically saying that anybody should be able to see this as a genuine manuscript. That's his argument in a nutshell. However, when it comes to these markings in the margin, here's what he said. He said, quote, Equally unfortunate with his assertion about the source is his fable of the initials which he says he painted on the margin and of which there is not the slightest trace in the manuscript. End quote. That's what Tischendorf said in 1862. But was that accurate? The answer is no. But that would not be revealed until the year 2007. In the year 2007, that is when uh, a scholar named Dirk Jonkind, J-O-N-G-K-I-N-D, is said to have discovered what are called 
the squiggle markings. And that's what they call them, squiggle markings or squiggles, which are written into the margin of the Codex Sinaiticus in different places. Now, admittedly, modern scholars don't fully know what these markings are, and it's uncertain whether it would even be possible to prove that they were placed there by Constantine Simonides, as he claimed. But it's interesting that they have been undiscovered for so long, until 2007, and that Tischendorf seemed to deny their existence. Also, that he refused to bring the original manuscript to a public debate. But the presence of these markings stand as yet one more piece of evidence that supports the possibility that Constantine Simonides was the true creator of the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, the purpose of this presentation is not to promote conspiracy theories, but rather to document for Christian people the real history of this manuscript, the history that's been covered up and often misrepresented. When we consider how Codex Sinaiticus was used by Westcott and Hort to change our view of the Bible, how Dean John Bergen accused their revision committee of a conspiracy, as he says in his book, The Revision Revised, and how the many corrections of the Codex as foretold by Kalinikos, would do injury to the church and convince much of the modern world that the scriptures cannot be trusted. We believe it's time for those who love the truth to reconsider the history of this manuscript and whether or not it should be included as an authoritative source in our Bibles today. I'm Chris Pinto. Thanks for listening.